Frank Viola is going to share with us, and he'll be leading the, uh, the dialogue on moving toward a common understanding of the content of the apostles' teaching that was steadfastly followed by the early church. You ready to go, Frank? Sure. All right. Have a good time. Okay. I'm going to stand. Hopefully that will help you hear me better. Um, just a footnote on your question sheet. I'm only taking simple questions and very kind complimentary comments. So keep that in mind when you fill it out. I'll be honest with you, the, the thought that's going through my head right now, with the understanding that we've all just eaten lunch, and it's a little after 2 o'clock, and uh, I can't help but think this one thought, and that is, this is the largest group of people that I have ever seen gathered together in one place to take an afternoon nap. <laughs> so if I can keep you awake, I will have accomplished something. Brother Don, how long do I have? Well, you take 30, 25, 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll go to 4.30. Okay. Okay. All right. I just got an iPhone, and it has a nice stopwatch here, so I can keep track. Uh, which reminds me of a story. There was a pastor once who was designing a new church building. And for 20 years, his entire congregation would sit in the back row. And they would always leave at 12 o'clock sharp. So while he was designing this building, he had something done to the pews that nobody knew about. Sunday morning came, and he mounted the pulpit, and as he began preaching, he pushed a button, and the pews began moving forward. <laughs> and the front one's disappearing into the floor. And they stopped when his entire congregation, for the first time, was now in front of him. So he began preaching, and at one minute before 12, he thought to himself, I've got him here. So I'm going to go overtime. And when the clock struck 12, a trap door opened and he fell through it. <laughs> so having that in mind, I'm going to keep to the stopwatch here. I want you to listen to these passages. And daily in the temple and in every house, they, the 12 apostles, ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 5. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles <clears throat> the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's Paul of Tarsus in Ephesians 3. And we proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. That's Paul in Colossians chapter 1. For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have handled with our own hands, that which we have seen and heard, 
declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Brother Don asked me to talk about moving toward a common understanding of the Apostles' doctrine or the Apostles' teaching that was steadfastly followed by the early church. I have to admit... I'm humbled by being here because I'm keenly aware that there are many people in this room that have lived a lot longer than I have, that have experienced a lot more than I have, and quite frankly that know a lot more than I do. So I hope that whatever I have to share with you will be helpful. Uh, I want you to know that One of my favorite scriptures in all of the New Testament is when Paul says, we know in part. And that's true for all of us, and that's true from now until the day we die. We know in part. And my hope is that out of what I'm about to share, we will be able to at least hear one other part and through the Holy Spirit's help, be able to piece it together with the other parts that you will be able to see perhaps what the next step is for you what the next step is for your church I am here to learn and so I was surprised when I was asked to to share something having said that let's talk about the apostles doctrine or uh, better translated the apostles teaching what was it what was the content of the apostles teaching The New Testament says that the church in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in it. And keep in mind, these were believers. These were new believers. They were Jews. They were just saved. So I want to take us back to that day, the day of Pentecost. And I want to put us there, and I want to use a little sanctified imagination to make a point 3,000 people come to Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. They're Jews. They're new converts. And they all go home, and before they do, Peter says, I want you all to come here at Solomon's porch. We can all fit here. And we are going to share with you what we feel is the most important thing for you to know as new followers of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And so, he says, come back at 8 o'clock in the morning. Peter says to the other 11, let's meet here at 7 a.m. and figure out what we're going to tell these people. (laughs) So, (laughs) they promptly drag themselves out of bed and they're there now and they're all looking at Peter and Peter says, what do you think? What should we tell them? And uh, James says, I know. Let's exegete the 613 laws of Moses and explain to them that in order for them to be pleasing to the Messiah, they must obey all 613 laws. And the other apostles say, no, I don't think that's what they need to hear, James. Jesus never taught us that when we were with him. 
And Nathaniel pipes up and says, I know. Let's tell them about the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel. (laughs) And then we can also interpret the visions of Ezekiel and let them know what's going to happen in the future. (laughs) And the other disciples say, "Uh, I don't think that's really what they need right now. And Matthew says, I know. They just came to Jesus. Let's deploy them to the city of Jerusalem and tell them that they have to share the Messiah with one soul a day. (laughs) And if they don't, God will not be happy with them. And the rest of the disciples drop their heads and say, no, no. I don't know what planet you're living on, but Jesus never told us that. And then John speaks. And he says this. Brothers, for three and a half years, we have lived with God. We have watched Him sleep. We have watched Him eat. We have heard Him teach. We've watched Him handle hot, boiling criticism. We've watched Him touch lepers. We've watched Him minister to women. Watched him talk to a Samaritan woman and say some of the deepest things about the father that a person could hear. And she was not only a Samaritan woman, she was a five-time divorcee. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. And so, brothers, why don't we tell them this? That which we have handled. That which we have seen. That which we have watched. That which we have lived with. Let us proclaim Him so that they will have fellowship with Him and with us. For our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And my brothers and sisters, that's exactly what the apostles did for four years in Jerusalem. They preached, they taught, they spoke of, they ministered, not things, not its, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can find this all over the New Testament. You can find it all over the book of Acts. They taught and they preached Christ. Now, what about the gospel? Didn't they preach the gospel? Well, certainly they preached the gospel to the lost. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good news, brothers and sisters. You can't separate the good news from Jesus. He is the gospel. We have no gospel without Him. It's not the plan of salvation. He is the plan of salvation. But wait a minute. What about the kingdom? Didn't they preach the kingdom? Hmm. Well, right or wrong, I'm going to share with you my answer to that question. And I believe, as a student of history, that the body of Christ, somewhere around the 4th century and on, has made a monumental mistake 
And that is that we have separated the kingdom of God from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have made it a thing. And it, a subject, a topic. And yet the early Christians, you can find this not only in the New Testament, which I will share with you in a minute, but you can find this in the writings of the Christians in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and even 4th century. Origen said that Jesus Christ is the auto basileia. What does that mean? He is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. He is the incarnation of the kingdom of God. You can't have the kingdom without the king. He fleshes out the kingdom. In him is the kingdom. I have often looked for, for for years, a translation of the word kingdom that I could insert everywhere in the New Testament. And it would fit. Okay, And the reason why is because there are so many different views and teachings and understandings of what the kingdom is. I would suggest that if I handed out a slip of paper to everyone here and I asked you to write down what is the kingdom of God, I guarantee we'd have, let's say we have 70 people in the room, we'd have 80 different definitions. (laughs) Now let me just survey here real quick because I want you to see the, the importance of this. There's one crowd of of Christians, and we'll just, I'll use that term, one camp, that says that the kingdom of God is heaven. That's still very much alive today. We have another camp that says it's the other realm. That's how they would translate it. It's the other realm. So it's not only heaven, but it's heavenly places. It's the spiritual realm. We have another camp that says it is related to the future, physical, literal coming of Jesus Christ on the earth where he will rule and reign physically out of Jerusalem, presumably. And so the kingdom is future. We have another camp that says that's all wrong. On the day of Pentecost, the prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, was answered completely. And there's nothing left to look forward to. The kingdom is here. And then we have two viewpoints that are dominating the Christian landscape right now. And they're held in tension. And one of them says that the kingdom of God is associated with making the world a better place. It is the bringing of a utopia into this fallen planet. And so those who emphasize that will say that the kingdom of God is related to things like social justice, caring for the poor, standing with the oppressed, taking care of the environment. Okay? Very popular today. It's, it's really the old social gospel pre-World War II that's been resurrected uh, as well as liberation theology. Very strong, very popular. Then over here, there's another camp that says the kingdom of God is associated with bringing the power of heaven on the earth. And so these people emphasize casting out demons, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, miracles. And what do you do with all this? And I would suggest this to you that I think we can find 
truth, I think we can find aspects of truth. I think we can find scriptural support for all of those. But brothers and sisters, it is my personal judgment that in every one of those camps, the kingdom of God has been separated from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it has become a thing. And it, we are chasing something, and now it's the kingdom, and Jesus has been lost in the temple. And do not think that that's not a possibility. I would submit to you that Jesus Christ is the embodiment, the incarnation. He is the reality of the kingdom. Remember when uh, he was standing in the middle of some Pharisees. And one of the questions they asked him was, tell us, when will the kingdom of God come? And his answer is very interesting. He said to them, do not think that the kingdom of God comes with observation. Saying, lo, here it is. Or, lo, there it is. <coughs> Listen. The kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, I am standing here. I am the kingdom. Wherever I am, there is the kingdom of God. You cannot separate it from Christ. Now, if I was a Bible translator, and I'm not, the best phrase that I know of, and maybe you can top it, but I haven't found a better one yet, the best phrase for the kingdom of God would be the manifestation of God's ruling presence. And I'll say it again. The manifestation of God's ruling presence. And in my opinion, you can take that sentence and insert it everywhere the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven or kingdom is used in the New Testament. Now, let's break that down. The manifestation of God's ruling presence. The manifestation has to do with image. It has to do with making something visible. Right? Go back to Genesis 1. This is the blueprint of what Paul calls the eternal purpose of God. That which God has been working out since before creation. The very reason why He created. Paul calls it God's eternal purpose. Because it began in eternity past. And we have the blueprint of God's eternal purpose in Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1, what does God say to human beings? Essentially, let us make man in our image. In other words, human beings were to bear the image of God, to make visible the invisible God. And then when we come over to the New Testament, what do we see? Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the manifestation of God. If you want to see what God looks like, look at the carpenter from Nazareth. He is the exact representation, the exact expression. No one has seen the Father but the Son who has revealed and expressed Him. So, set aside the word manifestation. Then you have the word ruling. God's ruling. God's rule. This brings us back to Genesis 1 and 2 again. God's eternal purpose. Man is created not only to bear God's image, but to do what? Rule the earth. 
subdue the creeping things. And what do we see in Jesus? Brothers and sisters, you have the rule and reign of God in this human being. He has power over nature. He is, uh, he is walking on serpents and scorpions. He is casting out demons. He has authority over the creeping things. He has within himself all authority. And so you have the rule of God embodied in this person, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to hit pause here and make a point, and that is this that it seems to me that in most of the definitions and viewpoints of the kingdom of God that I've given, it's all related to God's activity. Social justice, activity. Healing the sick, activity. Casting out demons, activity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, can't say his name, good German, uh, wrote a book entitled Act and Being. And in it, he said that God is not act and God is not being. God is both act and being. And you cannot separate act and being from God. And in fact, we find the act and being of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the two are wedded in Him. And so what I'm suggesting to you, brothers and sisters, is that I believe that one of the flaws that we, all of us, have inherited... It has to do with the mindset is we have made the kingdom of God act and we have separated the kingdom of God from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and you cannot do that because He is the kingdom of God in flesh. Now, that brings us to the word presence. The manifestation of God's ruling presence. And herein we find Emmanuel in this person Jesus is not only the expression of God, is not only the rule of God, in other words, is not only the act of God, but He Himself is God. His presence is found in a person. And you cannot separate His presence from that person. So in Jesus, we have God's act and God's being. In Jesus, we have the kingdom of God. And so consequently, I come back to the apostles' teaching. What was it? What did they teach? What did they declare? They declared one thing only. It was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as a plan of salvation. Not as a theology. Not as just Savior. But the unsearchable riches and the glories. The infinite treasures. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found where? In Him! And just step back and ask yourself, what is God the Father occupied with? He only speaks out loud two or three times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And He always says the same thing. This is My beloved Son. Hear Him. The Father is occupied with His Son. The Word of God, the Word that comes out of the Father's mouth, is always one thing. Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word of God. When God speaks, it's one thing. It's Christ. It's His Son. He's totally, completely occupied with His Son. And what about the Spirit? The Spirit has not come to testify of Himself. He has come to testify, to reveal, to magnify, To glorify me. 
Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is occupied with one thing, and that's the Son of the living God. You want to find a person that's full of the Holy Spirit? He's not going to be talking incessantly about the Holy Spirit. He's going to be talking about the Lord Jesus Christ out of every pore. That is a Spirit-filled person. He will be consumed with Christ. And what about the Scriptures? The Scriptures are a compass pointing somewhere. Pointing to your blessing. No. Pointing one place. For all Scripture testifies of me. And out of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, he unveiled himself. Brothers and sisters, you cannot turn one page of the Bible except that you will find Jesus Christ on every page, including the Old Testament. Even Adam, as Paul said, was a figure, an image, a shadow of the one who was to come. What's my point? My point is this. We have complicated the message of the Gospel. We have complicated Christian teaching. We have complicated the gospel of the kingdom. We have complicated the apostles' doctrine. And I would suggest to you that if you were to go through your New Testament with a very careful eye, you will find that what is breathing out of every pore, what is coming out of every page, what is permeating out of the pen of Paul of Tarsus and Peter and John is nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their message That was their doctrine. That was their passion. It was a hymn. It wasn't an it or a thing. If you preach the kingdom as a thing, you will get division. But if you preach the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His glory, depth, height, and riches, you will get the kingdom of God. You cannot separate the kingdom from Jesus Christ. Now, I went through last night just to kind of give you the flavor of what I'm speaking about and how the scriptures testified. I went through the first chapter of four of Paul's epistles. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I just want to share with you what I found in the way of making a point. And I want to contrast this by a habit I have. And maybe it's not a good habit. It's just a habit I have. I don't do it all the time, but I began doing it a few years ago, and that is whenever I'm sitting in a room where someone is speaking, um, as I take notes, I'm doing something else. I'm counting the number of times they mention my Lord. And I have to say, I've been in meetings with expert conference speakers, and I'm no expert. And they're talking about the church, or they're talking about the problems of the church, or they're talking about the restoration of the church, or they're talking about the kingdom of God, or they're talking about what the world needs. And I have sat there for 60 minutes, and not once did they mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How on earth can you do that? I don't understand it. People do not need an it, whether religious, correct, accurate, or right. They don't need a thing. They need Him. 
And this means that those who are Christian workers, we have one job, and that is to know Him so well, so deeply, so profoundly, that when we open our mouths, it is Christ and nothing but Christ that comes out. People need Christ. Not a method. Not a strategy. And I use those words because in the last few conferences I've been in, that's what I've heard. Strategy and method. Where's my Lord? Paul of Tarsus, in one chapter in Ephesians, listen to this. There are 23 verses in Ephesians chapter 1. He references the Lord Jesus Christ 27 times. This is a man who's occupied with what the Father is occupied with, with what the Spirit is occupied with, with what the Scriptures are occupied with. He's occupied with Christ. And that's what he built the church on. You know, we talk about master builder and workers being builders. Well, let me tell you something. There's three materials to build with. You'll find it in Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll find it in Revelation 21 and 22. It's what the house of God is made out of. Gold, pearl, and precious stone. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul mentions those elements, only he substitutes silver for pearl. Because silver speaks of redemption. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there is no sin, so there's no need of redemption. And in Revelation 21 and 22, there's no sin, it's gone. There's no need of redemption. But he says, take heed how a man builds, and what a man builds with. If you build with Christ... You're building with gold, pearl, and precious stone. Those are imperishable. But if you're building with something else, then it's wood, hay, and stubble. And it will not build the house of God. So that's just a little footnote. Colossians 1, 29 verses. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ 30 times. Philippians 1, 30 verses, he mentions Jesus Christ 21 times. And on and on. In June of this year, 22nd of June to be exact, a man named Leonard Sweet, who's a friend of mine, colleague, someone who uh, I greatly respect, he and I published an article entitled, A Jesus Manifesto for the 21st Century. And in it, we are exhorting the body of Christ to make the Lord Jesus Christ what He already is. And that is preeminent, supreme, the embodiment of all spiritual things. All things were created by Him. All things were created through Him. All things were created to Him that He might have the first place in everything. And we make ten points in that document. And one of them is you cannot separate the teachings of Jesus from the person of Jesus. It's impossible. Another one is, believe it or not, you cannot separate Jesus Christ, the head, from Jesus Christ, the body, the church. And we go on and on. And If I had copies, I would give it to you, but it's a free download. You can find it on the internet. You can go to my website and download it. But that's my heart. When we wrote that, we both felt like a huge weight lifted off of our shoulders. Len said it was the most important thing he'd ever written. He's written over 30 books. I have not written 30 books. 
but I feel it's the most important thing I've ever written. And as a footnote to this, or as a, an addition, I would say, download it, read it, think about it, pray over it, meditate on it. A Jesus Manifesto for the 21st Century. Let me tell you why we wrote it. Not only do we feel that in many circles, Jesus Christ has been shortchanged. Jesus Christ has been relegated as a footnote to our message instead of the main curriculum. But we believe that we're at a crossroads right now in the body of Christ. And the two options that have been given God's people up to this point have been to either go left or right. And we're living in a unique time when people look to the left, they're saying, I don't want to go there. And then when they look over to the right, they're saying, I don't want to go there. They're frozen with those two options. What we're doing in this manifesto, and this is my heart, brothers and sisters, right or wrong, I do not claim immaculate perception. Right or wrong, this is my heart. What we're doing in this document is we are providing God's people with a third path. And it is not left or right, it is forward or backward. And what we are attempting to do is to present with cut glass clarity the Lord Jesus Christ as Alpha and Omega and as the only path into the future. And if we take that path, the church will no longer be stuck in fortification. It will be moving toward exploration into His unsearchable riches. And He is the kingdom manifest. And so this is what we've done in this document. The last thing I'll say, and I have one minute to do it. I'm keeping time. There's an annual conference that goes on every year. Three people attend this conference. It's a Christian conference. It's not a megachurch conference. Three people. And all they do is they weep. And those three people are Mary, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. And they cry. And as they're weeping, Mary says, I brought him into this world. I gave him life. But they have worshipped me. And she continues to weep. And then the Holy Spirit speaks and he says, I came for one reason. To manifest him. To reveal him to glorify Him, to make Him real and living in the lives of people, to glorify Him. But they have put me on the throne and have lost sight of Him. And then the Bible, weeping, says the last word and says, I came to point all my arrows to Him to show men and women who He was, who He is, and the glory that is in Him. But they have made a God out of me. And on that note, they all go home, and they do it every year.
so if I have one point to make, it is this. The Apostles' teaching is an unveiling of the greatness and the glory and the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, I have said this to people who have asked me questions like, Frank, the churches you work with, what do you all think about this subject? And what do you think about that subject? And what is your position on this thing and that thing? And you know, my answer to them is pretty much the same. We will get to those other things after we have explored all the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know Him. We can display Him. And there's a huge difference between giving people an it or a thing even though it may be spiritual or religious, and giving them Christ. And so having said all that, brothers and sisters, I hope that you will take these things to heart. I hope we can talk about them. Remember, only simple questions and complimentary comments. But on that note, thank you for your graciousness. And it looks like you're all awake still. So. Great job. Thank you. Jose.